0: Pursuit of Podcast, a purely guest-centric show focusing on people and organizations that advance positive change. Positivity can be anywhere, and in a time of vast discord, the pursuit of is finding those who champion its causes loudest. Join us as we sit and learn about the pursuits of local leaders in their community. Let's go.
1: Hello, good people, and welcome to the Pursuit of Podcast, where it's truly not us, it's you. I'm Ryan Buck, Artist Development, New Leonard Media. With me, as always, is the boss, Mark Wilson, President, New Leonard Media. How are you,
0: oh, President? I like that.
1: As yeah, that's January twentieth. That? I don't know. Oh, yeah, right. I don't know. Owner, that's founder. That. <clears throat> All right, our guest today is John DiGiacomo, founding partner, at Revision Legal. How are you?
2: I am great. Thank you for having me. Thank
1: you for. I I was going to take a stab at your name. I I'd heard it on a video, so I knew, but I had to ask you just in case, <laughs> and I had to write it out phonetically.
2: It's not the first time. So, no <laughs> worries.
1: Um, so, you founded Revision Legal in 2012. Yes. With a very right. specific purpose, mainly focusing on trademark, copyright, patent, internet, and corporate law. Cut to 2020. Would you say your focus has been kind of further distilled or become more specific?
2: Yeah, I think we're more specific. The way that we try to pitch it to people is we say if you make money on the internet, then we're your people. You know, with that said, if somebody comes to us and they're a longtime client, we'll do other stuff, but we really try to focus on people who are doing stuff online.
1: Right. If you make money on the internet. Yeah. Yeah. Which is be... almost anyone nowadays. Wow. So in, in 2012, when you were, did you focus on the technology piece right off the bat? We did. At that time, it was more focused
2: on things like domain names, but now with COVID and everything else that's happening in the world, it's really about e-commerce. And most right. commerce is now e-commerce, so it's, it's become a lo- much larger practice, I think, than what we envisioned it would be in 2012. Certainly. Wow.
1: So in a 2015 Traverse City Business News article, it stated that at the time, 90% of your clients were located outside of Traverse City. And by then, you'd sent a subpoena via rickshaw in Vietnam to serve a hacker who stole a domain name portfolio worth several million dollars. And you had dealt with the high courts of the former Soviet Republic of Moldova to litigate a man attempting to relocate after securing money from a stolen IP. Is that kind of stuff still happening for you guys?
2: It is, yeah. <laughs> it, it happens every week. We, I would say that the vast majority of our clients are still located outside of Traverse City. A lot of our clients are located in foreign countries. We have publicly traded clients in Thailand. I spend every October in Thailand. Wow. So we're lucky in that sense, and we see a lot of weird stuff.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's got to make it fun in a way, I guess. I mean, you're dealing with heady issues, but is there a little levity to be found in that day when you're like, Get that rickshaw for us. We got to get the subpoena. <laughs>
2: it makes you feel like a, a hero because you can go to the client and say, hey, guess what I just did? I found this guy in Vietnam.
1: Wow. <laughs> when you're dealing with, you know, foreign countries, are, are you multilingual? Do you have staff that helps with that? How, how do you transcribe the, the language barrier?
2: We have some staff that speak multiple languages. Uh, my associate, Amanda, is uh, fluent in Spanish. Uh, we have a paralegal that's fluent in Italian. Unfortunately, none of those things ever mean anything because <laughs> we never really get to use them. We do right. have clients in Spain. We have some clients in Mexico. But at the end of the day, because English is the dominant language, and frankly, America is the dominant business culture, it's, it's fairly easy. It's not easy. as much of a barrier. Yeah,
1: it's, it's pretty easy to get stuff done. Wow. You hold a Bachelor's of Science, Philosophy, and Sociology, as well as your law degree. Is it true that a mentor to you urged you in the direction of law during a fly fishing trip here in Traverse City?
2: Yes, you did a lot of research. Uh, so Jordan Lindbergh, who is a local guy who owns eFulfillment Service and Stardust Memorials, he he was my philosophy advisor. And I was looking to apply to graduate programs in philosophy. And he said, you're an idiot. I don't make any money. And I'm moving back to Traverse City. This is, he was downstate at the time. And uh, you should come visit. And I said, Okay. Because I'd never been here. And so I came up and I fished with him. I think it was over the 4th of July weekend. And I just fell in love with the area immediately.
1: The busiest weekend in Traverse City. You saw <laughs> us at our peak and you still were yeah, still enthralled.
2: I did. I did not go into Cherry Fest. I instead was fishing on the Asabo. And it was perfect. It's like the perfect northern Michigan moment where there were fireworks in the background. And i just, you know, I'm a downstate kid. So I'm like, this is.
1: Had you experienced fly fishing before or was it a first time?
2: I had, but it was on the Chippewa River. So I don't think you would consider it (laughs) the same as as being up here. But yeah, so when I was in college, he taught me how to fly fish and he was also my advisor. And so um, he said, come up here. And I came up, fell in love. And then he got me my first job with a firm up here while I was a first year in law school, which allowed me to come up in the summers.
1: And that happens So you can start working in the profession while you're still continuing your education.
2: Yeah. It was a risk for me because most people in law school look at that first year as really the year that defines where you go and picking a a job with a smaller firm means you're going to lose out on that big law firm name and you're not in Chicago, you're not in New York City. So it was a risk. But I think at the time I I was either insane or I knew where I wanted to be. And that's how I ended up
1: here. <laughs> Sometimes those are two the same feelings yeah, in so, a way. Yeah. Would, would you say the previous degree helped in a way? I mean, I could see philosophy and sociology really finding its way into the legal system in a way.
2: Yeah, my philosophy degree is the greatest thing I've ever done. I have no qualms about it whatsoever. Um, it taught me logic. It taught me to think in a way that I think is more structured and is helpful for solving problems. And then sociology taught me to think about things from a perspective of maybe those that I had not thought about before, which was very valuable
1: for me as well. Wow. What's keeping you busiest right now?
2: Right now, the busiest thing, well, the largest thing that's happening is a lot of mergers and acquisitions. Because of COVID, everybody's selling online and we've been doing a ton of deals to acquire companies that sell online. So we represent a couple funds, one of which is about a billion dollars. And these type of funds are buying up these kind of smaller e-commerce retailers. And so we're doing one or two deals every week now, which is pretty crazy.
1: Is that normal for this time of year or that's exacerbated by what you just said is going on with COVID? And-
2: I would say that last year we did maybe four deals total. And now we're doing in some months, five or six. So it seems to be a combination of both COVID and a lot of liquidity. There's got a lot of people with some money and that money's moving into places where people can make money in this kind of post COVID world. Sure.
1: Well, I mean, obviously this is something that nobody could foresee when all this happened. did you start to see around the bend that this would be happening or was this kind of a surprise to you?
2: I had no idea when covid hit and we were in March and April I was I lost like $100,000 the first month and so I was like oh great this is we're out of business within the next 5 months I'm sure right, <laughs> so right. I, I had no idea and then people started calling and and things turned around uh, I mean it's logical though if you if you think about it you know people are selling more online it's easy to deliver products to people who are in their right. houses so it makes sense You didn't sense.
1: think for a second like What we do, we're insulated, guys. Like, this is, we chose the right path. (laughs) I thought,
2: I am so terrified right now, I don't know what to do. I thought, like, I really hope I don't have to fire people and I can make payroll. That was my my
1: first reaction. (laughs) That's such a, and you hear that a lot. And and I don't want to discount that, that a lot of business owners, founders, presidents of businesses, their first thought was, I don't want to not make payroll. And these people depend on me. And that's a, that's a, I think a selflessness that gets you to where you are. But it's admirable. And were you able to, to go through this? And, and did you end up adding to staff at all?
2: We did. We hired one person. So oh. things picked up and we hired a new attorney. His name's Mike. He's down in Kalamazoo. Yeah, we, we were really lucky. We, we kind of turned the bend and we were able to make it up. But it was scary. And it's sad because the type of client has shifted. So like our local clients, I say we don't have a lot, but they're typically things like restaurants, breweries. Sure. They're suffering. And it's tough to see that. You know, even though all these other clients are coming in and paying us a bunch of money, we're still trying to devote time to those people to get them through these difficulties.
1: Right, right. In a 2013 interview, you talk about how important social media is to branding and ensuring that you're protected legal in all possible ways. Since 2013, are artists and companies better at that now or do they still struggle? I think they're
2: getting better. I think they realize the importance of it. But a lot of companies look at social media and they just say, oh, yeah, social media. And that's it. They don't really – they don't understand the tone. They don't understand the tempo. And frankly, we're one of them. If you ever look at our social presence, it's horrible. It's me taking a blog post and dropping it into Facebook and that's it. Right.
1: It's not good. Well, it sounds like you don't have a lot of time to be musing on <laughs> no. blog topics and things like that.
2: No, that's true. And I think some companies do it really well. And there are a lot of really good people, particularly locally, that are capable of doing a good job. So I think it's getting better. Definitely.
1: Right. In the same interview, you cautioned companies against – I thought this was neat. You cautioned companies against trolling, which I looked it up. And that was a term used in an online context for the first time in 1992. <laughs> Interesting. And so that's been around in a while. But you said, you know, be be careful about trolling. Cut to a few years ago, some companies, notably like fast food companies, have started to turn trolling into like a marketing art form. Is there a balance there? I think the answer as of January
2: 1st is like, yeah, there has to be a balance. I think we're, we're starting to realize that trolling, I think people thought trolling was a unique technique and it went too far. And you see some of that in QAnon, for example. Like QAnon comes from this, world of somethingawful.com which was a site back in the day very popular that turned into 4chan that turned into 8chan then it was 8coon and it was just groups of trolls and the trolls went from place to place and it got worse and that's how you ended up seeing all these things that you saw over the last few months so i think that we're realizing that there's a limit to that type of marketing right and we have to tread carefully
1: right and there can be legal ramifications to what you post online even if you say i'm just trolling that's not a that's not a technicality that you know assuages you from the law
2: yeah there's no real anonymity online i mean there is right. if you're incredibly intelligent but we typically find you like a good example is we'll find people in china who are counterfeiting and we'll do it by a trace through series of ip addresses and proxy servers and if you're smart enough, you're
0: able to figure out who somebody is. You're like is. Hugh Jackman in follow, Swordfish. Follow the data.
1: <laughs> so fascinating. Oh yeah, my gosh. yeah you,
0: start, you talk about uh, this. It'd be nice for to hear your podcast weigh in on uh, the, I think it was Burger King and Twitch. They did a, a trolling and got a whole bunch of free marketing out of it by the way they went viral.
1: Yeah, I guess it's the the viability of what you're doing. Does it catch on and how does it perceived?
2: Well, I think a great example is, I don't know if you watch the news, but uh GameStop is the stock.
0: Dude, prices dude like if we
1: would have bought last week because they've announced they're closing so many stores or they're
2: <laughs> no, because a <laughs> subreddit decided that they were going to troll some options traders. So they all yep. bought the stock and now the stock is like,
1: okay. Yeah. Now, now this is influencing Commerce. That's well,
0: it, bizarre. It, it does and saves saves them from going bankrupt. Like they were going the other way. I think the same thing was supposed to happen with uh is it Dodgecoin, Dogecoin, one the of the like, what the joke cryptocurrency and like Twitter was gonna make it go through the roof on one day and everybody announces it and they go for it, you know.
1: Wow. It's
0: like an All episode right. of Black Mirror.
1: it's really bizarre (laughs) well focusing here on tc you mentioned the restaurant industry brewing industry is really strong here and i know you helped out right brain and they provided a great testimonial for you you helped them with trademarking as well as other components what other elements of the brewing industry can you assist with aside from just trademarking there's other things you can assist with correct
2: yeah we we do everything from lease agreements to brewing microbrewery licenses we do trademark disputes we've done Trade secret protection. Perfect example is the CEO stout recipe at Right Brain is a trade secret. It has components to it that are valuable that no one else knows and hopefully no one else does know it. So that's the type of stuff that we typically work on.
1: So when you talk about trade secrets, it's obviously something more than locking it in a vault on a piece of paper. How do you, because I was fascinated by this, how, how do you define a trade secret and how do you protect it other other than just trademarking it?
2: So a trade secret is anything that has independent economic value from the fact that it is a secret. So locking it in a vault is actually the right way to do it, Okay. Uh, surprisingly. um, Trade secret can be really anything. It can be a process. It can be a procedure. It can be a recipe. And the way to protect it is to keep access to it limited. So those who need it and have a reason to know of it
1: have access to it. Right. In singing with Right Brain, a specific example, you assisted with their uh, Spinal Crusher IPA. And he told a, star, a story about how it started out as Spinal Tapper, and they hadn't done the, the research, and there was another Spinal Tapper out there, so they had to change the name of the beer and change... So that's costly,
2: right? Yeah, it's, it's incredibly costly. So
1: it, it makes more sense to engage with Revision Legal to make sure that they're... Good when they release a beer throughout the state of Michigan.
2: Yes, absolutely. I think my favorite story of this is that we represented a client that had multiple franchise locations and they realized that they had not cleared a trademark and they had to spend $3 million to change all their signage and all their marketing materials. And the, you really know, the, clearance, the clearance search on the front end is $450. So you know, had you done it at the <laughs> I was going to ask
1: you, what's the, what's the weights on that? Yeah. The it, counterbalance is uh, not strong. And he mentioned that as advisors, they really appreciated you as partners. And he said sometimes when you strongly advise, he'll normally say yes. So how do you strongly advise? What's the way that you're saying you need to do this? I know we don't need to make you do this but what's the way to lead them to water and make them drink?
2: Well, with Russ, we're both from Flint, so I just slap him around a little okay.
1: bit. it's <laughs> <laughs> a little, a little uh, threat of physical harm that'll do it. <laughs> no, uh,
2: it, it depends on the client. I think knowing their needs and knowing their psychology is helpful in advising them. So if you have somebody who is risk adverse, explaining to them what the risks are in more depth is valuable. If you have somebody who's not risk adverse, explaining to them what the potential risks are and the loss of money or or whatever it might be is another way to go about it. So right. it just depends on the person, I think.
1: In a downtime, you know, desperate measures and and so forth, do you find that companies are coming to you and saying, I, I'd like to sell this trademark? Is it possible to to profit in this time? Under those circumstances?
2: Yeah. We, uh, selling trademarks is a pretty regular part of our practice. Selling individual trademarks occurs in the beverage industry, for example. Every once in a while, you'll get a, a shady call from somebody from New York City who will say, Hey, I'm really interested in this trademark that your client has. And it's always a proxy for a big brand. So, you know, behind the scenes, it's Anheuser-Busch sure. or, it's, or it's some other company. And they've put half a million dollars into a some marketing campaign that they're about to launch and they realize they need that trademark. Those are fun because then you you get to provide some value for your, your local client. It seems
1: like an odd miss for a huge corporation to get to that point and be it like, it happens. Yeah. We need this.com guys. And let's figure it out. Patent law. I find that absolutely fascinating. I remember growing up with a friend whose dad wanted to patent something and they had to go to the library downtown Chicago and look through books and books and books. This was in the 80s. You offer detailed services, including advising the clients as to whether their idea or product is likely to return a profit. And then what should you do? I think that's re- really fascinating that you get to that level with a client.
2: Well, it's tough because patents are so expensive, you, anywhere from 10000 to $30,000, depending on the, the level of complexity of the utility patent. So it's important to have the conversation at the outset of, w- do you really think this is a commercializable patent? Do you think this is going to work? Who are you going to sell it to? Are you going to develop it yourself? Are you going to license it? Do you have the money to enforce it? And those are the questions that I think... Attorneys need to ask because when attorneys sell services that people can't afford, that provide no value, it makes us look bad. And I think asking those questions at the front end builds trust and makes people come back to you as opposed to just selling them for the immediate benefit of having money.
1: Right, right. Well, that's something that's obviously an important part of the process. From conceptualization to patent approval, what's the typical time frame that that takes?
2: Well, I'm not a registered patent attorney, so I should tell you that we have, we have two in our office with that said, I'd estimate two years. It's a long process. It's, wow. it just depends on the, the material and whether there is what we call prior art in the marketplace or, or in the prior registered patents.
1: Right. Early in 2019, the Supreme court introduced legislation that caused copyright cases to last longer and cost more specifically for artists in the U S is that still the case?
2: Yeah, copyright infringement cases are one of the most expensive types of litigation that you get yourself involved in. Really? Yeah, and a lot of ca- we see a lot of trolls that we talked about trolling earlier. Copyright trolls are attorneys who find a plaintiff who has work and then sues somebody, usually an innocent by- innocent bystander, for the purpose of getting money. And the reason they do it is because the cost of defense is so high that they know you'll settle for a, a reasonable amount. So you get attorney with a good plaintiff they'll settle 15 20 cases at 10, 10 grand each it just
1: yeah. s- sounds so <laughs> the way you put it yeah
0: yeah they they have a whole episode of that on uh, silicon valley i don't know if you're a fan of that i, show. I haven't anyway, seen it yet but I, yeah does yeah. it
1: relate to the tech industry specifically obviously um
0: in a way yeah uh, so a gentleman had bought the rights to some like really obscure old song and then anytime anybody has any notes in their song that sounds like that he sues them right and and it's worth 20 grand to them to make him go away so
1: and is that true that and, on television you can only play 3 seconds of a song before you have to pay the artist
0: there's no time it's um it
2: the, depends on instantly yeah it's instant and basically it's
1: like on a live podcast if you sing a copywritten song that if they found you, they could charge you. Yeah. You gotta, I
2: you gotta it. sign those cue sheets.
0: And right. Get, get those. To yeah. It. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then of course there's like differences if you've used their actual mastered recordings or if you're doing a, a remake. Right. So like if you're singing it, then the, who owns the rights to the um, publishing Sure, is owed their nine cents well, it's or whatever.
1: Like bands that are notoriously stingy with their music. When Led Zeppelin showed up in school of rock that was a big deal. And I just wonder what that would have cost. I mean, as a side question, do you know what it costs if you're a big movie and you need to license a big song?
2: Oh, when you're a big artist, it just comes down to negotiation. I've seen $500,000 in some cases. I've seen $100,000. It just depends on the movie and the artist. It's an open market, basically. You, mm-hmm. you get what somebody's willing to pay. <laughs>
0: uh, I'm always curious about things like when an artist expresses that they didn't give permission to uh, like a politician to come out to their song. And I always wonder if they even own the rights to their song.
1: Usually not. Yeah. So they're just saying
0: it, but it doesn't matter. Like the label owns it and they sold the royalty. It doesn't matter.
1: Well, we're going to get to music in a bit. I'm glad that was a a cool set. No, that was a really cool segue, but I wanted to get to the revision legal website, revisionlegal.com talks about the proliferation of technology, specifically the the development of, consumer-friendly business models that are causing artists trouble potentially. Can you elaborate on that? What's a consumer-friendly business model that's challenging?
2: Sure. A good example of a recent one is print-on-demand. So Mm print-on-demand is the idea that you can take any image, copyrighted or otherwise, and upload it to a website and have merch printed. So t-shirts, sweatshirts, uh, cups. And we've represented artists in that space, and we've represented the platforms in that space, and it's an emerging area of conflict because artists like getting paid, <laughs> but at the same time, <laughs> a novel idea. people like the flexibility of building the products that they want. So there's this constant tension that technology creates between those two goals.
1: Right. And it seems like there are so many businesses out there that are are built to make things easier on you, make a website easier, create a logo easier. Do you think those are good things?
2: I think they are. I think that it always is a balancing test because they're good for consumers, but they're not always good for producers. And you have to incentivize producers to produce more. So there has to be some level of balance between consumer friendliness and making sure that people are compensated for the work that they produce. Right.
1: Well, if you're an emerging artist, let's say in any form, what are a few things that they should, if they want to legitimize and they really want to give it a go, what are some things that they should look out for? Absolutely do to cover themselves, maybe legally or in general.
2: If you're, for example, an emerging musician, anyone who contributes to your album, you need to have assignment agreements from them. So if somebody is producing something that's copyrightable, you want to own it because you want the full flexibility to produce that and sell it in any way that you would like. Right. So making sure that people have signed those agreements uh, is important. Because, and you call that
1: an assignment agreement.
2: Yeah. Cause I think most people don't realize that when you create something as an artist, you own copyright rights to it immediately, but those rights vest in the individual who creates it. So if I create a baseline and I send it to you and then you incorporate it into your album, that's my work. And I, I own the copyright rights to it unless I, I assign them to you. So collecting those rights and making sure you've vetted them uh, properly is very
1: important. Right. And on the website, I like this. And the website's great. You mentioned uh, you just updated it fairly recently? Yeah, we did. Looks really good. But there's a a quote on there that really stuck with me. It it says, a generation already exists that will never understand the phrase, I have to return some videotapes. My question to you, is that a reference to the movie American Psycho?
2: It is a reference to the movie American Psycho, and it, it was from my partner, Eric Mysterievich.
1: <laughs> I, I've never been happier. I, I read it, and I thought, because it's one of my favorite books and movies, I shouldn't really admit that, but it, it just resonated with me, and I heard it in Christian Bale's voice, and I thought that was great. So there's obviously a lot of stories about bands, and there you know, writes their original masters and who owns what. And, you know, somebody can just buy the entire Beatles catalog. Have you ever been a part of helping an artist reclaim some of their work or in in that space?
2: Yeah. So we've represented two Grammy winning artists in the music field. And then another popular artist who was popular in the seventies that contributed some music for Guardians of the Galaxy got popularity as a result of having their stuff on that, interesting, that
1: album. Because that was a lot of classics, which was the charm of the movie. So that's obviously, that brings artists back into the limelight that maybe wouldn't have been there.
2: Yeah, and that case particularly was interesting because they had been in a publishing contract and under the Copyright Act, you can recover your rights after a period of time. And so we advised them on as how to Recover their rights to that work, which was being widely exploited. Obviously, without a ton of compensation to wow. that band,
1: yeah, uh, there was some, but just not appropriate amounts or appropriate levels. Yeah,
2: I mean, when you are a band, you're getting filtered through your royalty arrangement, so you're not getting the vast majority of that that cash. It's right. mostly pennies on the
1: dollar. Right, and it's not the case that somebody may have seen a film that their movie is in or their song is in, rather, and is surprised by that, they would know or would they not know?
2: They would know by checking, uh, and again, I don't know the mechanics of this one particularly, but I think they would know by checking their ASCAP or BMI account. Sure. And it would almost be an afterthought. They'd get a check in the mail and they'd be like, oh, I guess my my song's appearing in a movie So is week. that kind
1: of like a movie residual? You know, you may have been an extra in something and you get a 11-cent check every time it's on TBS.
2: Exactly. In fact, we had a case... <laughs> Which I can talk about, which was public knowledge, where we ended up suing the WWE over residuals. Because the WWE had failed to pay for some music that they had acquired when they acquired WCW Wrestling. And our client was one of the original authors of an entrance music for one of the wrestlers. Oh, boy. And so we ended up suing WWE. Case settled. It's within the public record. And uh, I really enjoyed it because I had an opportunity to issue a deposition notice for Vince McMahon. And it, it was like my proudest moment as an attorney. Did you send
1: it via rickshaw? I No, I should have. I should have done something dramatic. Or put it in a big ornate belt.
2: <laughs> I just remember calling my business partner and saying to him, dude, I can't wait to depose Vince McMahon. Which, of course, was never going to happen because he's never going to have a stand. But now that I'm an older attorney, I, I know and I'm a little bit wiser to these things. Wow.
1: So you're saying all these – you know. Grammy award-winning artists, and and how are your clients getting to you? Uh, Usually through the internet. I think – well, let me rephrase that. At first, it was
2: the internet, but now it's word of mouth. So usually what we would do in the early days is buy ads, and we would get people to us through that mechanism. And from there, we decided to stop because we were getting enough clients in without having to spend that kind of cash. And now it's just kind of word of mouth. They had been satisfied, and they come back.
1: Well, I mean, when you have – so many high-profile cases, there's obviously a lot of pressure. So what do you do in the office to, well, before, let's say, you know, what what's what's the, the office environment like? How do you kind of, you know, keep the team inspired and gelled? I see it in the movies, you know, it's late night, you're cramming, there's, you know, Chinese food containers around, Coke cans. It's probably not like that. So how do you keep the office environment before all this?
2: I think the way that we kept the office environment going is we would get – usually we'll get a house somewhere, and we'll just get everybody into the house, and we'll just kind of throw a big party. Right. And we try to lower the temperature of internal office politics and stress and all the things that come with being in a high-paced, high-stress job, and that's helpful. Now it's tough. It's mostly – I want to say Slack, but that's not what we use. We use Microsoft Teams, but it's just – joking in in microsoft teams which is a completely different environment than what you would be used to six months ago well
1: you know i've read several articles on how humor in the workplace is critical you know willy wonka said a little nonsense now and then is relished by the wisest men it's a weird business philosophy to go to but that's always i've always leaned my hand on that so what's the best movie about the law or legal profession do you have a favorite or do you not care to watch any of it because that's your day-to-day
2: uh, okay, so I have two. Um, the best movie for somebody interested in law in Michigan is Anatomy of a Murder, which was a John Volcker, uh, Robert Traver was his – I think his pen name uh, book that was famous in the 40s or 50s mm-hmm. about the uh, murder in the UP. Yeah, And I love that because John Volcker was a Supreme Court justice for the Michigan Supreme Court and he was fantastic great justice and so it's a good book it's about the moral ambiguity of law the show that gives me the most anxiety as a human being (laughs) is better call saul Really? because the show is like (laughs) so on point with trying to scrap as an attorney and you're just faced with these like ambiguous situations where you're like i can make a ton of money doing that but i can't because that's not ethical or or like uh Working out of the back of a nail salon. When I started, I worked out of the back of a, a warehouse out on blue star drive. So it's just like that, that level wow, of, you
1: have that story too. Yeah. And it, I was it, wondering, you know, he's in that strip mall, you know, you see that in the movies, but you had to, you had to grind as well.
2: I did. I, I had a little office for 300 bucks on blue star drive, right by the landscape company <laughs> that my friend Andy owned the warehouse. Cause he's an e-commerce guy. And, uh, yeah. Now we're downtown. So it's, it's been a, a trip for And was sure. the
1: warehouse in 2012? That was yeah. the start?
2: Yeah, that was the start. And
1: how long between that to the next move? I would say a year at most. Wow. Yeah. Is that typical life cycle for that to find success as you may define it that quickly? No, I think we grew faster than most. If we were to look at revenues,
2: we've doubled in revenue every year, except for this year. So it's been a, it's been a ride
1: for sure. It's impressive. Yeah. Now, as I understand it, realism and anti-realism are important tenets of Nietzschean metaphysics. (laughs) But in your opinion, what about the roles of perspectivism and the will to power? (laughs)
2: Well, the will to power is a bastardization of his sister's vision of what his writing should be because his sister was a Nazi. So, uh, perspectivism is interesting. It's a flawed and meaningless philosophical doctrine, But it's interesting because it serves as the origin of things like Ayn Rand and objectivism and and kind of all of the selfish uh, justification for morality. That comes later in, in American philosophy. <laughs> this is all uh, I'd hoped for.
0: Yeah. I was, <laughs> so I, I wanted to tell the listeners Ryan's over there just dude, grinning and so giggling. this
1: was a paper you wrote, correct? Or was this a dissertation? Or Yeah,
2: I wrote, I wrote a paper in college on anti-realism and Nietzschean metaphysics. And I think I probably wrote something on perspectivism as well.
1: Wow. Fascinating. <laughs> Fascinating. Is there anything else you'd like to share with the listeners?
2: No, thank you for having me. It's been fun. It's been
1: our pleasure. John, thank you so much for your pursuits and to all those who pursue along with you, helping artists, entertainers, organizations, big as and small, protect their work, their brands, and their art. It's a big undertaking. Thank you for doing this. And to our listeners, thank you for listening and for pursuing the positive.
0: Hey, thanks for joining us again with the Pursuit of Podcast and our friends at Revision Legal. That's revisionlegal.com or anybody you may know that is in need of legal advice regarding intellectual property, you check our guys out. And when you're online, also check out Herb and Meds in Traverse City, Michigan. That's at hnmwellnessstore.com, and And also the Tin Lid Hat Company, tinlidco.com. Use promo code thepursuitof at both websites for special discounts to our listeners. Hey, we'll catch you next week. The Pursuit of Podcast, New Leonard Media.